0: Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders, co-sponsored by Luther Seminary's Faith Lead and Lead. Welcome to Pivot, where today's topic is Loving Our Neighbor. I'm Terry Elton from Luther Seminary.
1: And I'm Scott Cormode from Fuller Seminary.
0: And I'm Louise Johnson, and I work with Lead. So I just have a little... Story to get us started here this this day. I uh, was on a all day Zoom calls, and I had like 45 minutes for lunch. So I ran down to my kitchen, got my lunch, and sat outside on a nice summer day, and was like just being outside. And guess what? My neighbor comes by, nice social distancing, sits across the way, and in my head. I'm like, really God, my neighbor has to come right now. And then of all things, my neighbor wants to talk about God. And I'm like, okay, seriously, I was so ready to just be for a half hour. And so I talked to my neighbor and then I was packing up my stuff saying I had to go back to this meeting. And I went inside and I just kind of got on myself. I'm like, seriously, Terry, you're so busy organizing the church and teaching church leaders about things that you don't literally have time to talk to your neighbor about God. And I was just like, okay, busted.
2: It reminds me um, early on in the pandemic, when at LEAD, we were trying to sort out what do people need and how can we help? One of the interesting things that happened, of course, all of our listeners will be familiar with this. But one of the things that we noticed was that we had virtual visitors. We had people showing up in our digital spaces that weren't normally part of our congregations, at least as far as we could tell. And so I had the privilege of working with a number of clergy um, over about a six-week period, just thinking together with them about what it might look like to welcome those digital visitors. And one of the things we found out was that it's, it's really a lot more difficult than it sounds. But what I continue to believe is that that's such an important pivot. How do we begin to notice, to find ways to connect, and then to shape, to let new people shape our communities so that they become authentic representations of what it means to be the Christian community. And so they're just there. It feels to me like there's a major pivot to be made there, particularly in the digital world.
1: One of the things that I have been thinking a lot about over the last couple of years is what I call tumbleweeds. God brings people into my life that are tumbleweeds. The way I describe it is that I didn't expect them. They're not somebody I signed up for, but then somehow they become mine. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, I was I got a call from or an email from my uh, alma mater. They wanted to send a fundraiser to come and talk to me. I'm like, I don't want to talk to a fundraiser. But then I thought, you know, my own school is going through a fundraising campaign right now. It might actually be pretty educational to have a fundraiser come and visit you just to kind of see what it's like to go into this site. And it'll cost me an hour. Okay, fine. So a guy comes, he talks for me. We, we're, he's there 20 minutes, half an hour, and he's about to leave. And he turns and looks at me and he goes, you have an awful lot of books here in your office. And it's like, well, yeah, I'm a professor. That, that kind of is part of the territory. And he says, well, there's a lot of books about God here. Do you mind if I ask you some questions about God? Well, what am I going to do? Say no? I mean, of course. I mean, that's you, you, this is what, you know, sure. I'd be glad to talk to you about God. What would you like to hear? And we talked for about half an hour. And he had a lot of good questions, and I was able to talk with him. And so at one point, I realized, you know, he needs to have follow up. So I said to him, would you like to come and talk to me again sometime? He said, I would love that. And so the next month he shows up and we have a conversation about God for about an hour. And then he goes home and pretty much every month now he started coming. And eventually he uh, became a Christian, joined a church, joined a Bible study. The part of the reason he was asking these questions is he had a friend in his life who kept telling him about Jesus. And he's like, seriously, this is real. But I realized at some point that he was one of the people entrusted to my care. Uh, That phrase means a lot to me. I don't think that, well, as Christians, we talk a lot about leadership. I don't think as Christians that Christian leaders have followers. Jesus has followers. But we don't have followers. We have people entrusted to our care. And sometimes those are people we sign up for. You know, I'm going to be the pastor of this church, and so these are the people that I will sign up for. I'm going to be in charge of this youth group. These are my people. But sometimes God just rolls these tumbleweeds into our lives, and we go, you know, I guess now this is one of mine.
2: I love that. I love the image of the tumbleweed and maybe it's worth thinking about the people that are entering into these new digital environments as kind of, you know, our, our digital or virtual tumbleweeds. Of course they're real people, but they're sometimes unknown to us. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is how do we begin to speak into that space? Sometimes you know, when we've asked or tried to connect with people in those digital environments, they're not really all that interested in being known, at least not yet. And so I think, okay, how do we begin to give language to or speak into what's happening in our world? And what is a occurred to me is that we have such a common experience. NPR, I I got to listen to a lot of NPR lately because I've been spending a lot of time driving um, across the middle of the country. So I caught lots of NPR, but they were talking about this notion that with a global pandemic, we have a common experience like we never have before. And of course, they were coming at that from kind of secular view. But one of the books I've been reading lately is a little book called On Religion by John Caputo. And John Caputo talks about the kind of common human experience of what happens to us when we come to the end of our capacities, when we discover what is impossible for us, when the veil has been lifted, when we've been disillusioned by our own sense of agency or capacity, which I think is a lot of what's happened in this pandemic. And so I think it's left a lot of people going, wait a minute. I thought like the ways we lived and what I did, had I had this stuff, you know, basically under control. I knew what to do when I got up in the morning. I had a job. I, I had a way of life. I had friends and family that I connected with. I knew where my kids were going to go. I knew basically the structure of life day in and day out. And of course, all of that's been dismantled. And so it leaves us with this common experience of disillusion. And Caputo talks about that that's that's a space, he wouldn't say it quite this way, but um, the sense I get from his book is that that's a space that God loves, that God steps into when, when we feel disillusioned and at the end of our capacities, that we run up against what is impossible for us, that God becomes the possible And so I've just been thinking a lot about that and about the kind of hunger that people are waking up to and what that might mean for us as a church.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, Louise. And then I think, at least in the congregational leaders that I've been talking to, there's this also now unveiled realization about the anti racism and trying to be a learner trying to be more deeply aware of the pain that exists for literally our black and brown neighbors that that might literally be in our cities or in our communities, and we haven't seen it in that way before. And I think of, at least in the conversations I have with people, this vulnerability to say, I don't understand. I don't know. But I'm open to listening or or I'm stuck. What do I do with that? And and I think we've talked about listening to hear that. And now the next leadership move is how do we help people make spiritual sense? At least if I was in my class, that would what I would tell my people. And I would point to a book written by Scott Cormode, who's actually with us. So Scott, I'm really intrigued by your way of thinking about leadership, Christian leadership, as helping people make spiritual sense. Can you say more about that?
1: Sure. Let's let's think about what we've been saying so far. So far, we've said that we've encountered a lot of people that are new to us, whether they are coming to our space virtually, they're tumbleweeds that are rolled into our lives. We've talked about the common human experience that uh, we've all been experiencing, whether it be through the pandemic or r- racism, one of the things that we're realizing is that there are certain things in people's lives that cry out for interpretation. That if we don't interpret them, an interpretation will come and fill that vacuum. And I think about, you know, Louise, you were talking about the, the common human experience, you know, the... In the Western tradition, we often talk about the human condition. There are things that every human encounters, things like questions around death, questions about is this all there is? How do I care for my aging parents? What do I care for my younger children? There's all these things that that we could talk about as the experience of somebody in Minnesota and somebody in Beijing would recognize it as this is part of what it means to be human. And I would argue that the incarnation the coming of jesus is god's response to the human condition and that god's reaction is to come and be one of us and to live amongst us and to die and to be risen again and to send the holy spirit so that we might have abundant life in the midst of this human condition and so there's a certain sense in which your question, Terry, kind of creates a trajectory for many of these podcasts. You know, how do we make spiritual sense? Well, we start by listening. We listen to the people entrusted to our care. We listen for their longings and losses, for the ways they experience the human condition. And ultimately, what we do is we need to give them language for making sense of this, whether it be a question of anti-racism, whether it's a question about the pandemic, whether it's a question about visitors, whether it's a question about, you know, we were talking before just before we got started, we both have aging parents. You know, each of these, you know, whatever they are, there are things that if we just sit and talk to another human being long enough, stuff will come up. And we need to give them language to see those things from a Christian perspective. How does God make sense of the fact that I have aging parents? What does God care about the young people in our world right now? And our job as leaders is to give our people language so that they can make sense of it. And ultimately, it is through that language that they get changed. And that's how they learn to love their neighbor as themselves.
2: Yeah, wow, Scott, there's a lot to... Uh, to take hold of their really appreciate your language around making spiritual sense out of things. One of the things that I've been noticing in working with pastors, mostly in my own denomination, but noticing that this notion of like reaching out to our neighbors about understanding them as people who are entrusted to our care is that I don't think anybody intends this, but it's sort of like the last thing on the to-do list. It's like if I can get through and tend to all of the, the committees, the proposals that go to council, the details around you know, shifting to the newest technologies around digital worship, if I can figure out what's going on with giving in my congregation, if I can tend to matters around a book study around race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then maybe then I can turn my attention to who these new people are and how to get at them. And and part of me completely understands that, right? Because it's much harder to give up what we do know for something that we don't know, right? That's one of the challenges of adaptive change is turning our attention and energy and time, letting go of things that we do know in favor of things that we don't. And yet I think everybody would talk about the importance of evangelism, the importance of reaching out to our neighbors, and yet That becomes such a difficult thing to do because it's hard to get all those other things done on our our lists and then begin to get there, and particularly in this day when our lists have gotten so much longer and so much more complex.
0: You know, for me, one of the big pivots here around loving our neighbor is actually rethinking what evangelism and mission outreach are. I think that we have tried through those kind of initiatives to compartmentalize loving our neighbor by creating programs for evangelism or service uh, initiatives around mission that kind of make them distinct and separate them from things like discipleship and growing in our faith and worship. And I think that has resulted, Luis, in what you're talking about, this kind of add-on piece of or maybe even optional to our calling from the gospel. When the truth is, as I look at scripture, loving our neighbor isn't separated from loving God and a life of faith. And in fact, I think we, the church, have overcomplicated it in so many ways. I think there's a lot of reasons for that, including perhaps that we like to put loving our neighbor or talking about our faith into a little box that we can put on our schedule and not have it bleed into like my day, right? I only have 30 minutes and you're interrupting my 30 minutes, right? And so what happens when we actually see loving our neighbor as just part of who it is to be a person of faith? And loving our neighbor means I'm going to talk about God, and it means I'm going to help my neighbor when they need it. I'm going to be in relationship with them. It's not a program or a set of initiatives, I think. I got a great story. One of our former students, uh, has. we've had a long conversation, and when really fun things happen, she calls me, and I'm like, tell me about this. So she Tells me I had talked about this book, The Art of Neighboring, and she had gotten all excited about it and had read it and created this trip about it. And during the pandemic, she remembered about this whole initiative she'd programmed for her youth around uh, an event to love their neighbor. And as she was quarantined in these first months, sitting in her neighborhood, she remembered that book and she picked it up. And on a Sunday afternoon, she looked across the street and her best friend who lives across the street was there and said, I'm getting her and we're gonna go meet our neighbors. Because one of the challenges in the books is, do you know the eight neighbors around you? So she said, We got our like big girl pants on and we went and socially distanced met each of our neighbors. And she's like, It was uncomfortable. I'm a church leader. And I had to go and say, I have lived here for over 15 years and I don't know your name. Hi, I'm Kristen. What's your name? Tell me your story. And that afternoon, hour and a half, two hours later, she said was the most incredible time. She said she learned of one of her neighbor's wife had had cancer and they hadn't shown up as a neighborhood. And she's like, I just say, I'm sorry for that. And I want to know that if there's any way we can help you moving forward to let me know. And each of the times she was amazed at when she took initiative and was vulnerable and wanted to build a relationship, how willing her neighbors were to actually respond back to her.
1: This reminds me of, uh, there's a story from, there's a book called Growing Givers Hearts which is written by uh, Tom Jevons and Rebecca Birch-Basinger. And uh, what they did is they studied Christian fundraising. They went out and they got nominations for who are the very best Christian fundraisers. And they just simply observed them and said, what do you do? And one of the things that they found that the best fundraisers do is they don't let people get away with just giving money. They, They make sure that they get to know the people that they're supporting. And they generalize this idea to say that you can't say we want to love our neighbor without ever getting to know our neighbor. If you want to love your neighbor, you're going to actually have to encounter your neighbor. Uh, Writing a check, uh, being concerned, reading the newspaper, those are all important. But at some point, you're actually going to have to encounter a neighbor. And I go back, Terry, to your original story. Of sitting in front of your house, and a tumbleweed rolls across the street. And you're like, no, this is inconvenient. Can't we schedule, God, when you're going to intervene, and I'll make things available to me? God, this is the, I've, got, I've got other things on my mind right now. And this kind of an openness to people is a significant part of how we love our neighbor, because there are encounters that we can create, like your friend uh, going and knocking on a door, But then there are encounters that just simply come along because you rub up against other people, even in a social distancing kind of a world. So if we want to love God and love our neighbor, we're going to have to recognize that means more than just simply saying, love God and love your congregation. We're going to have to find a way to get beyond our congregation out into our neighbor's.
2: One of the things, I appreciate are saying that, Scott, one of the things that I love about scripture is that I think the disciples have a very uh, common experience. There are a number of stories in scripture, of course, where Jesus and the disciples go away. They're, they're needing some time on their own, and the crowds follow them up the mountain or down by the sea, um, because there are so many that are in need of healing, and they come because they believe Jesus can do this work. And of course, on several occasions, Jesus does the work of healing and it's beginning to get late and the disciples are looking around and they're seeing thousands of people gathered there on the mountain or the hillside and they recognize that that they don't have enough food to feed the people and so they want to send them back down the mountain. They want to send them away so that they can finally get to their alone time with Jesus they want to be gathered together. There is a small group. They don't want the interruption of the crowds and they just don't have enough food. So it's very practical, right? Everybody understands why you would want to send away the crowds. But of course, that's not what Jesus does, right? He he welcomes the interruption, the inconvenience, the Even the impossibility of what it might mean to feed and welcome thousands of people. And of course, they're presumably tired and and they had a whole different agenda in front of them that day. But Jesus, of course, welcomes the interruption. He uh, gets the disciples to collect what little food there is and then offers it to God uh, with thanksgiving and blessing. And then, of course, it becomes enough it becomes enough for everyone to be fed. And so I I wonder if there isn't something there. I mean, I love that the disciples sort of embody our own frustrations with what it is to deal with. So what seems so overwhelming, but what Jesus does by way of welcoming that interruption of the neighbor.
0: All right. So true confession, I got a second chance. So It was probably the next week when I was at the end of the day out on my front patio sitting and the neighbor's husband came by and they have started doing this gathering on the driveway for small group church gatherings on Tuesday. So he was getting ready for that and he wanted to talk about it. So we yelled across my yard as I was sitting there. And he was excited to not only talk about how they were excited to talk about faith with the group of people present, not just virtually, and was asking, you know, how, how we were doing things. And then there was this pause. And I thought, I have the chance to end it here and love church, to your point, Scott, and leave it at the church thing, or I could take the next level. And I chose to go to the next place. And I said to him, I said, hey, neighbor, do you know that one of our children has been diagnosed with cancer and we've been walking through this really hard time? And he's like, I didn't. And we had this very vulnerable and real conversation. And he said, thanks for sharing. Can I bring that prayer request to my small church gathering that's going to start in a few minutes? I said, of course. And so for me, in this pandemic, when the church has been forced out of the building, when at least where I live, you still have to gather in small groups of maybe like 12 or less, Jesus, right? Talk about the disciples, right, Louise, right? In these small groups, when we're meeting literally outside in our porches and on our driveways and in parks. And we have these shared things that are disrupting our lives, this pandemic um, that has multiple ripples, this racism and systemic stuff that we're trying to process together. And then we have our own things going on on top of it that feel like so overwhelming. And I think this art of neighboring, this book and this movement that I talked about with Kristen which by the way, you can get the book, The Art of Neighboring, or go to the website, The Art of Neighboring, and, and wonder about what are those practices mean for us today? Literally, all Kristen did was go knock on her door and socially distance, have a conversation. All I did was make myself available to the people and that I know their name to share my life with. And God showed up because the church is now visibly in the world. What are we going to do with that? I think there's some takeaways, there's some practices that we can embrace during this time and do them ourselves, not just invite people to this work.
2: Yeah, I think that's, I'd love the suggestion and just the simplicity of that. One of the things I've been thinking about too, in terms of this pivot is to I was reading on Facebook the other day a, a good friend of mine who's a preacher. She was just lamenting like the weariness of months and months of preaching to a screen, right, and not being able to see people and experience them. And I think that that's a really challenging thing to do to not kind of receive that feedback. And it's even more challenging to imagine that people are there who you don't know. It's it, 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 you might be able to say, okay. You know, there's the Smiths over there and there's the four kids that I did confirmation with last year and so on and so forth. You might be able to imagine the people you do know, but what does it look like to imagine people you don't know, right? So, And then and then to, to translate that into worship leadership. So when you're doing announcements, right, to maybe explain a little more about this event with a clever name that everyone in your congregation would know about, but people um, who have never been don't understand what the Kairos group is, right? So you might have to explain some more of those kinds of things. And then to just be aware of referring to people in the congregation well you know last week pastor so-and-so talked about this or um, you know if you have a question please email uh, Jessica who well who is Jessica and how do I email her right and then to just even imagine as you're preaching what would it be like to speak a word into uh, to imagine, right, what you're you're seeing face to face, Terry, is your neighbors, and you don't know what their faith tradition looks like. Maybe you do by now, but maybe you don't know much about that. And what does it look like then to to address a sermon in that direction and to see worship? as um, the new front doors of a church. Because if we were meeting in a physical space in a building, when somebody came in the building, you wouldn't just ignore them. You would be aware of their presence. So how do we bring that awareness now to a digital environment?
1: So you've been talking about takeaways. Carrie talked about the art of neighboring well. Louise talked about preaching and she talked about how When we preach, we have to imagine a group of people that goes well beyond uh, our front door. And I want to offer some what we might call tumbleweed practices. What are practices that we can develop if we're going to be good at responding to the people that God rolls into our lives? And I have five of them. Number one would be awareness, that we just have to be aware of these things as they're rolling in because we work hard to ignore. It's not that we are passive. We actually have defense mechanisms that work hard to ignore so that we don't have to take responsibility. And God is constantly offering us options. So these are people that God is bringing to us. So awareness is number one. Uh, Second is openness to them. The idea that, uh, that they're going to bring things that will be different than what I have and that God may be working through this moment. The third is listening. We've done a whole podcast on listening and how the importance of uh, leadership begins with listening. The entire idea that when God rolls these tumbleweeds into my life, I need to be open and I need to listen, especially listening for the longings and losses of the human condition. Number four is empathy. That when I experience listening to them, I need to be open enough to be able to call up within myself the feeling that they are describing. If Terry rolls into my life and she talks about how her daughter has been experiencing cancer, I need to be able to do more than just pat her on the head and say, I'll pray for you. That has to call something up within me about, I know what it's like to worry about a loved one who is sick. I know what it's like to have kids who are going through things that I can't take away from them. I need to feel those feelings. That's what empathy is. It's not just patting somebody on the head. So we have awareness, we have openness, we have listening, we have empathy. And then the last one is follow-up, some kind of an invitation that it's not enough to just simply feel empathy and then walk away. There has to be some kind of a follow-up that allows us to create the opening space for a relationship, something that uh, continues beyond this moment. I mean, even if it's something like Terry's neighbor saying, we will pray for you in our gathering, and then asking, how are things going? That's what it means to deal with our tumbleweeds. So we've had three takeaways, uh, the art of neighboring well, preaching to people beyond uh, our, our own congregation and these tumbleweed practices. As we finish our conversation about, about neighboring, let us remember that God is the one who is in the world reconciling God's self, the world in Jesus Christ. And God has invited us to be a part of it. We don't go out into the world as people who are you know, salesmen who have been given a task to go and to drag people into doing something they don't want to do. God is out in the world offering the world life. The incarnation, God's coming into the world, is God's response to the human condition. All we can do is participate with God in what God is already doing. There is nothing less that we can do. There is nothing more that we can do because that is enough. Thanks for being with us.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of our Pivot Podcast. For more leadership resources from LEAD, you can go to waytolead.org or from FaithLead, go to faithlead.luthersem.edu.